Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod. This is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is produced here at the Crawford School of Public Policy, the region's leading graduate public policy school. And I'm delighted today to introduce a new member of our presenting team, my co-host, Quentin Grafton. Quentin, welcome to the pod team. Thanks so much, Sharon. Really happy to be here. So, Quentin, today we're we're going to be talking to Peter Yu, which is a real treat, um, about Northern Australia, issues around development, around um, a whole range of issues relating to the North. Have you been to Northern Australia? Broome is one of the places I've always wanted to visit and never have. I have indeed been to Northern Australia, but you know what? I've got a confession for Peter. I've never been to Broome. <laughs> So I think for both of us, Quentin, after this podcast, we will both plan a trip to Broome. Absolutely. So we spend a lot of time on this podcast talking about the countries to Australia's north. Today, we're looking north again, but a little closer to home. We're going to be focusing on northern Australia, which comprises roughly half of the Australian continent, but certainly receives less than half of the attention from policymakers. It's a region with a challenging geography, wide cultural diversity and a range of issues around social inequality. It's also home to a very large Indigenous population and ever since Federation, it's been the subject of grand thought bubbles from politicians and others about a vision of what that region could become, whether it could become Australia's next economic powerhouse. So far, such visions have failed to materialise, but perhaps that could all change soon. I hope they will change, but we're really fortunate today to have Peter Peter Yu with us. He's a great Australian, and I don't use that term lightly. He's a Yahoo man. He helped negotiate the landmark 2000 Yahoo Native Title Agreement. He's currently chair of the Northern Australian Indigenous Land and Sea Management Alliance. He's got decades of experience around Northern Australia, and particularly in the Kimberley and WA, Western Australia. He's a great person. He's the, probably the best person we can have here today to talk about Northern Australian development. So welcome, Peter. Thanks, Gwyneth. Thanks, Sharon. Peter, it's, it's great to have you here. But before we get started on today's discussion, just a reminder to our listeners that we're really keen to hear from you on the issues that we talk about today or on any of our pods. You can reach us at Apps Policy Forum, Asia Pacific Policy Society on Facebook, or you can use an old-fashioned email and drop us a line at podcast at policyforum.net. 
And don't forget to wait until after this interview because we'll be answering some of your questions and taking a look at some of the comments from uh, previous issues that we've talked about. But now let's move into our discussion. So, Peter, Quentin has given us just a very small taste of a remarkable career, a remarkable life, a remarkable contribution to Australia. Can you just tell us a little bit more about, of the roles that you hold, what are most important to you? Well, I um, have a a number of previous roles, Sharon. Uh, I used to be the um, executive uh, director of the Kimberley Land Council during the uh, native title discussion and as part of the team in negotiating response, the national response to that. But prior to that, I'd spend most of my time working uh, in the bush. So I'd say probably about 40 years, if not more, uh, of my life I've worked uh, in rural and remote areas uh, in, in the Squinton Cities Reduction, in, in primarily in the Kimberleys, uh, but also uh, working across Northern Australia on Northern Australian issues generally at a national, state and international level, I guess, representing the um, the nature of where there has been the policy vacuum in in this country. I mean, we're talking about a relatively short kind of period of history in terms of the contemporary issues dealing with the engagement of particularly the Aboriginal community, and it's uh, the nature of that effect on the uh, on the nation in respect to Northern Australia. Uh, I currently chair the uh, Indigenous Reference Group, the Northern Ministerial Forum, as well. So we are in the process of um, finalising our recommendations to put to the Northern Ministerial Forum, which is chaired by Minister Canavan and hosts um, Minister Scullion with the three uh, jurisdictional ministers of regional development from Western Australia, the Territory and uh, Queensland, um, sometime in uh, in November in, in, in Mount Isa. And that will be a culmination of the last 12 months or so of work of, um, for the first time, bringing into scope the very specific nature of Indigenous uh, interests uh, in Northern Australia um, and in terms of the uh, opportunities, I suppose, and risk of interface with the growing Northern economy. Peter, you talk about Northern Australia and we hear a lot about Northern Australia, but you also talked about the jurisdictions um, that Northern Australia cuts across. So when we think of you know jurisdictions within Australia, we think about the states. What does Northern Australia mean? You know, what does it mean geographically, um, but at a deeper level? You know, what, what kind of meanings does Northern Australia have? Well, in, in a policy context, I think Northern Australia really is a different country <laughs> in, to the rest of the nation in the sense of its uh, level of focus in terms of the kind of um, statutory and regulatory framework that's built around um, community, around industry, around land tenure, around... Um, uh, resource development around uh, infrastructure investment uh, around um, uh, all those kind of things that um, where we take for granted um, the whole issue of contribution to the national economy and GDP uh, the uh, uh, rural and remote and particularly in West Australia of course with the current GST debate still raging on uh, we, in terms of the contribution and the distribution uh, percentages, but uh, um, you know we, the demographics. Obviously, uh, as they stand today, the majority of the population on the southeast coast um, um, and east coast and southwest. So, I guess in some, I think I've saw previously in a productivity commission report uh, mentioning that 80, 80 but eighty percent of Australia is considered defined as rural and remote, um, and uh, but yet eighty five percent of the population actually lives within the kind of populated areas that I've mentioned. So. I think there's a feeling that um, uh, people who live in the cities and in the major regional centres around those populated areas spend very little time looking over their backyards in terms of um, the nature of 
uh, what it means to be Australian. I mean, there's a, there there is a kind of um, a sense of superficial nationalism at times around celebrated around Australia Day and all that sort of stuff that relates to. Uh, the mythology of what it is to be an Australian as it connects to the bush, but in terms of the reality of that connection, I think that this is where Aboriginal people, as the traditional owners, not only of the traditional estate, but I guess I would put it in terms of um, the the national estate as well too. That that we are the continuing connection uh, in terms of the strength of understanding and conviction about what it is to be an Australian, and I, I think we haven't yet reached that. Uh, tipping point where the majority of the nation have fully understood or grasped that to the extent that they can appreciate more fully the the opportunities that are there in terms of um, uh, the relationship with Aboriginal people, but also the opportunity to um, to look at how we might sustainably develop um, the kind of natural assets that we have. Uh, but those assets have to include the kind of socio-cultural uh, and uh, and other assets that are largely held by the uh, Aboriginal people as the custodians and as owners and custodians um, of of the nation. Peter, you you talked uh, then about what it means to be Australian, um, and you've talked previously about the importance of looking at history and looking at history in a truthful way. You know, understanding what the, the history of Australia genuinely is. How do you see sort of these discussions that are unfolding about development in Northern Australia? playing into that sense of what it is to be an Australian and perhaps helping us to rethink the history um, and to, to perhaps think more truthfully about that history? I think you uh, we kind of look at it in measurable terms where we can contextualise and people might have a better understanding. The listeners about, you know, we, we usually refer to the 67 referendum as a kind of a milestone um, in Australia of um, the Aboriginal people being... Um, counted for the first time in the census, you know. I think that most most people really don't appreciate or know that the the nature of the uh, statutory and regulatory regimes that um, emerging out of the Terranalius and into the kind of like the the apartheid eras that uh, occupied Australia, uh, most people don't realise, but the 48 regime in South Africa actually came from Australia and Canada. You know, um, I, I'm a living, in living memory of my... My grandparents and parents part of that kind of process. So, um, and so, but if we if we bring it forward to sixty seven and we look then what happened with the pastoral award wages in in uh, sixty eight um, after the walk off of Wave Hill. Um, before that, uh, we the first strike I think was in nineteen forty six by the Pilbara pastoral workers. Quite amazing feat when you even think about it. They spent a couple of years kind of riding bicycles and walking right across northern Australia advocating for parity in wages um, and then subsequently walk off by uh, Vincent Ligari at uh, the Gurindji people up in Wayville and then subsequently the uh, uh, the award wages decision in 68 uh, and then but it wasn't actually implemented until 1972 so uh, I kind of look at that as a, a critical area and period of where we are today because we had an internal refugee situation happening uh, where people were pushed off uh, cattle stations into service towns and in some places would have been as high as, you know, one, two thousand percent uh, with no no infrastructure, no preparation, no services. So the nature of uh, dysfunction that emerged out of that, we're kind of having to deal with it. So if we look at what we want to do now, we need to look at history and understand what we didn't do in terms of planning. 
in terms of engaging, in terms of the appropriate communication, in terms of giving the equity for Aboriginal people in the first place because we still make a majority of those people who live and die in the north. Um, and, and of course, you know, subsequently as a result of the Northern Territory Land Rights Act in 76 uh, and then the Mabo decision in 92 and the, and the Native Title Act, um, Aboriginal people are the largest landholders across Northern Australia. I mean, either directly or indirectly through the, through the Land Rights Act in Territory. Uh, and or through formal native title determinations. Um, and I would suspect that um, uh, over time, the majority of that uh, will be complete. Uh, so under the current legal regimes, no matter what you want to do in the north, you have to negotiate with Aboriginal people. So I think the kind of um, the, the vacuous policy history uh, and, and the uh, inappropriate and demeaning policy uh, position that has been there uh, denigrating and regulating um, us to more, um, not even observers, but subservient to the nature of the interests of a dominant society is something that is here an exciting, on one hand, an exciting opportunity, but on the other hand, a considerable risk in terms of the way we um, uh, collaborate to engage uh, and, and utilise those assets both tangible and, and non-tangible assets that Aboriginal people have to bring to the table. So I think that's the, that's the biggest challenge we have. Peter, can I follow up in terms of this myth of the North? I mean, you've highlighted the assets and, the, and one really important point for me is the social, cultural uh, assets of the First Peoples of, of Australia and in the North. But there's this view, and you mentioned that you're on a task force or a committee for, headed by Minister Canavan, and he recently wrote about the, the North and the ability to, 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 to use those resources in particular in terms of water. And there's other people writing about this wealth that's just waiting to be tapped. So could you tell us about what you think about the, the myth of the North and, and what you think that wealth is and who it should go to and, and what's happening right now today in 2018 in Australia? Well, I think in Sarah's introduction, you talked about the, the historical kind of view uh, from down south, if you like, of the potential of the north and what's happened. And of course, a working example, a glaring example would probably be the Ord River uh, as an example, you know, which was um, completed in about 1968, seven, early 70s. Um, and uh, the great kind of um, expectation and aspiration just in terms of it becoming a bit of a um, a major contributor to the growth in the local economy, but also for the nation as well in terms of agri agribusiness, agriculture. And uh, that's a classic example when you talk about water. Um, you know, in the first instance, the traditional owners of Mirong, Gajarong people, I mean, had all of their traditional lands basically without any engagement, you know, consultation and even compensation, I think, if there was, and it was quite minimalist. But if you think about it today, all of their important cultural assets are underwater. People talk about Lake Argyle, and you see this impressive, very massive spans of water, and um, all the all the you know dimensions in terms of um, uh, its volume and its capability. And it is a magnificent site and magnificent river. But uh, if you look at what what wasn't achieved, you'll you'll see that there was a great sense, and even probably today, it's not people giving it a decent go. We've now got the Chinese in there in terms of uh, sugarcane and and other. Um, agri-products, but the North has been plagued by a lack of research and investigation and actual proper data. We don't understand the environment properly. You know, we have inclement weather, we have cyclones, big wet seasons, we have very dry periods. 
We have um, pests that we don't have. Um, biosecurity is a major issue up there. There are all these things that are yet to be uh, properly understood. Peter, you've, you've talked about, I guess, the complexities of Northern Australia, the specialness of the place, and what we don't know, particularly what we in the southeast don't know, what Indigenous peoples, what traditional owners do know. And I wanted to take a step back from that and ask your thoughts on the concept of development. So often when people in the in the southeast of Australia look north, it's in terms of development and the development opportunities. And you've already flagged, you know, the extractive industries, the challenges around land and water management. And so often in Australia, when we talk about development, we think about it in terms of economic growth and economic outcomes. If we think about the way development is framed globally, we hear much more about concepts of participatory development, inclusive development, um, and there are debates, discussions that we don't seem to have in particularly sophisticated ways in Australia. I'm really keen to hear what development means to you and how we should be thinking about this concept of development in Australia, but particularly in Northern Australia it's a very good question. Um, let me say that uh, Aboriginal people aren't opposed to development. I think uh, what um, uh, we want is um, to the to the respect and to understand what the values are um, that uh, that traditional owners and Aboriginal people have generally about uh, the connectedness to country um, and their obligations to be able to look after that country, all the natural resources. So development from our point of view, like if I take uh, my group, the Ara, for an example, is um, the kind of um, um, we've we've introduced this. Uh, it's 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 a it's a traditional practice and uh, value and philosophy, I suppose, called Mabulian and Mabuburu Mabugurungulil, which is about um, the the sense of well-being of yourself. Uh, it's about the, the the well-being of the country and the resources. It is about the well-being of the community. It's about the interconnectedness uh, between that, in the way you um, are able to uh, respectfully relate uh, to your community, to your family, and to the people you do business with. We don't see business as business as usual. This is a completely different um, environment with the the nature of the understandings that we have both from science but also from the, the gradual acknowledgement of uh, traditional knowledge. So, you know, in, we want to put those two things together to understand the kind of science methodologies that bring us a greater appreciation of the, of the Western concept and ideas and, 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 um, and evidence. Development should happen in a space uh, that uh, measures the nature of its um, ability to provide benefit and, and impact on on people's values, on people's livelihoods, on um, as a community, uh, for those that it, be, it is participatory, it is collaborative. So we take the view that we have to own our own risk. So, from a development point of view, and risk is something every business, and no matter which, whether you're a multinational company or you're a small business or a family business or an individual, um, fundamentally, risk is such a critical issue. But it's not very well understood in terms of its application and, and, and comprehension of what that means in any given kind of environment, particularly if it's a if you take a place-based approach to development. And I think that that's critical. And so we, we take that. So we can't wait and be observers in it. It's it's our land. And, and this has to be the new paradigm across Northern Australia for Aboriginal people at the same time. Um, but we can't do it by ourselves. We certainly need to partner. The dynamic 
will be in a, in a business um, engagement context where uh, through equity or partnership, people bring their kind of values to the table. We bring the land, we bring the the knowledge of the country the land, and uh, how the kind of planning processes might assist, um, you know, save expense and cost in, in, in the nature of the conduct of a particular business um, for people who don't know the North. I mean, we've through this process in the... Uh, um, in the Northern advising the Northern Ministerial Forum, we've had cause to talk to Geoscience Australia and um, also to Infrastructure Australia. Now, they're two, obviously, critical national institutions that provide the mainstay in respect to data and evidence um, on one hand from the Geoscience Australia in respect to any industry in terms of developing uh, its, uh, its propositions and proposal. And on the other hand, you've got... Um, Infrastructure Australia, which has to provide, you know, its obvious advice to the to the Commonwealth in respect to the major investment on infrastructure projects around the nation. But what they don't have uh, is they don't have the social cultural value data of of traditional owners. And and what what's the biggest problem we have in the country is we have a a, a process called the Future Acts, where those developers have to engage and negotiate with traditional owners because of the Native Title Act. Uh, and because we own a lot of the land. So what do people do? The first thing is that they actually lodge an objection. So there's time, money, energy goes into then trying to get a mediation to the current process of the Native Title Tribunal uh, when we would be advocating uh, more a process to guide developers through to agreement making. You might end up with an agreement later on going through this Future Act process, but it could take anything from six months to three years. But... If there's a more streamlined process to encourage negotiations, um, um, which come which can come about by actually providing the capital and other resource support to uh, fledgling Aboriginal organisations who don't have the capacity to engage in mainstream negotiations, uh, or to be able to assess appropriately access the data to understand the nature of the physical and other uh, impact on the resources uh, that. Um, impacts on people's social cultural position, values, that causes uh, a, lot of, a lot of friction, a lot of tension. So um, um, if there was a way in which the various jurisdictions and the Commonwealth could um, invest in um, uh, providing Aboriginal people the ability to, to collect that data, to have it um, uh, integrated into the system where there are obvious protections of cultural sensitive issues, but uh, integrated in the system so it can be accessible so people know rather than there being this kind of standoff or this um, uh, in, in the process, this this immediate kind of arguments about um, what is there or what isn't there. And so, Peter, you mentioned the resources that are needed to, to make that happen. Mm. Um, quite specifically, if there were one or two things that you could make happen in the short term, in the next year, 18 months to achieve what you're talking about. What are those immediate things that we need you know, beyond beyond the resources? I could give you an answer because it's something that we're working on. It's not formal, but it's an idea. But um, I, think it, I don't think it's giving you any secrets here. But I think what we really need is a northern-centric focus in terms of coordination of providing um, prescribed body corporates and other Aboriginal organisations to develop some capacity, governance and management capacity uh, to engage with um, governments and, and policy and also engage with um, people wanting to use their land, third-party interests wanting to use their land. So they should have 
a, I suppose, a um, single access point, one-stop shop, uh, to do two things. One is to ensure that the evidence base is there through having access to data. The other one is to ensure that there is support for governance and management of those corporations so they can actually interface with proponents. And I would like to see uh, a resurrection of the NARU idea, the North Australian Research Institute, initiated by um, uh, Nugget Coombs back in the 80s and, um, up in Darwin, uh, which sits on the ANU's campus there. And I'd, I'd like to see the ANU uh, work towards uh, reactivating that uh, because I, I think it would be entirely consistent with the vision that, that Nugget had so that the, the various uh, research capacities uh, in terms of not only engagement in the economy, but also that other side of it, the, the important um, um, embracing and integration understanding of the cultural and social values as to the benefit it brings to the, not only to the North, but to the nation. Peter, it's been a real pleasure to hear the vision that you have, and uh, it highlights in my mind the issue of distributive justice or the lack of it in the North and elsewhere in Australia, and also highlights governance issues, you know, how we can get partnerships between South, North, and, and between various parts of the of Australia. So I, I suppose getting to some of the, the tricky issues uh, which you've highlighted, you know, we've got a plan, the Australian government had a plan in 2015 for Northern Australian development. It has a plan in 2018 for, for the development in terms of water resources. So how are we going to get the, 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 the distributive justice? Uh, how do we get that, that uh, partnership, a real partnership? And you've explained some of the ways forward, but, but it seems to me there's a, there's a big difference here or they, a symmetry in terms of power relationships and who's got the power and who's got the money and who hasn't. So, so how do we do this? I mean, you've, you've talked about the ANU, the Australian National University, and, and certainly there's, there's a lot of potential, I think, for other groups to be part of this. But, but, but what, do we, what do we do? I mean, it's, it's, it seems like uh, there's this challenge in front of us. How do we take it? How, how, do, we, how do we grapple that? That's a very difficult question, <laughs> but, but I'll try. I, I think it's I, – I, I'm, I'm an optimistic person. I, I think fundamentally it's, it's about the politic. It's about the politic. I mean, we've seen the last couple of terms of government, at least there is seem, seemingly some um, bipartisan approach towards Northern Australia. And there seems to be uh, some a more, uh, even for the distasteful nature of politics in Canberra, there is uh, seemingly some common interests developing because that is fundamentally. Because you, if I look at it from an Indigenous perspective, I'd say if you look at the way we're constitutionally structured, um, that um, the Commonwealth has the constitutional authority in relation to laws for making peoples as 67 reaffirmed. The states have the powers for land and water administration, which is reaffirmed by the Commonwealth again. Um, I don't know when, but a few years ago. But but so you've got this demarcation. The two critical things in in in, in society is land, water, and community. The politic between the state and the Commonwealth uh, plays havoc in relation to Northern Australia and and Aboriginal people particularly. The in in our research to date we found that there were something like 57 different agencies that are responsible across Northern Australia for helping, that is both state, territory and Commonwealth, assisting uh, communities in respect to engagement in the economy. 57, you know, and um, um, I doubt very much whether many people actually engage with them. There's a huge, 
the the the, the kind of fiscal um, uh, nature of investment as well too. I think is uh, a way uh, that um, money um, is distributed um, to the states, and to what extent is the flow-on effect of that investment uh, into the north? Um, you know, we have a major investment in public service. Um, um, not speaking bad against public servants, and very decent, very good, committed public servants. But it's it's systemically the system where um, it takes the authority and the power outside of the region. It's it creates this north south divide. Whether you like it or not, we are a large country. You know, um, uh, we need to be able to delegate, uh, decentralise, delegate. You know, get greater efficiency and productivity out of that how that investment works. And and we talk about that all the time. The Productivity Commission measures that, but in real terms, it, it doesn't really happen. And I think the nature of development has always been uh, the tri- trickle, triple down, mm. trickle down effect economics and the, and the nature of the insidious incrementalism. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. In, in, in my view, that um, uh, we can't afford to do that in the, the nature of the rate of development of technology. So instead of us investing very heavily in the use of that technology to advance our understandings and our capability um, in delivery of these services, um, we're very slow to do that. And, and because of the politic, which relates to marginal seats, which relates to um, the kind of numbers. I mean, we represent in the north probably only about 2.5% of the voted population in federal parliament. So that in itself will probably be very clear to listeners about what, if any, influence we have politically to make those adjustments. So it really requires uh, visionary leadership and strong leadership. So can I follow up on that, Peter? So there was the Uluru Statement and there was a response by the current Australian government to the Uluru Statement. We're talking here about politics. We're talking about power. Where do we go next? Well, I, th- I think um, you know the ANU, uh, to its credit, um, uh, early this year had a, um, a governance symposium, international governance symposium at Old Parliament House, inviting some significant uh, Indigenous and other leaders from around the globe, uh, where they far well advanced their experiences in relation to treaties. Um, we haven't attained that level at the moment. What we have is a number of states. Victoria have uh, set up a process to engage with the. Um, you know, traditional owners of Victoria to look at developing treaty. The previous uh, Labor government in South Australia had indicated they were prepared to do the same. Um, the current government has dropped it. The um, uh, or, as I understand, looking at it, the the Northern Territory government has made some general, um, um, I guess, comments in this regard to 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 something in the Northern Territory. But um, I think I think the one would suspect that if if and I don't have a crystal ball, but uh, whoever is the new government, the water's, water's been muddled because we're in, we're in electioneering mode. And um, but once that happens, it, it, it will have to be addressed because uh, issues like uh, the economy in the north, the development, um, the options are the, the governments continue to spend money they don't have significantly 
in a social welfare program that really doesn't deliver much return for that investment? Or do we want to make um, a meaningful contribution to the active participation of the first peoples in the uh, economy to help the economy grow, to be partners in that? These are critical kind of um, things that will drive. We also have a very, um, thankfully, very large and now developing, well-educated Indigenous um, population growing um, who will you know, become part of the business uh, environment. I think from the point of view of um, we will have to move to a treaty of some sort, quarter, quarter, whatever you want to, but we will also need to look at the... Uh, the long-term question of the um, constitutional um, amendments um, in the matters that were dealt with by the expert panel, the forum, um, and also the joint select committee. I think that those, um, the voice is certainly something which is strongly supported um, in the Aboriginal community and large sections of the Australian community. Um, but I think for the country as a whole to um, start to develop its kind of level of maturity that we we, we would all be anticipating in the 21st century is that the majority of uh, Australians would want to do away with the race, um, um, you know, the, the discriminatory kind of laws that are there currently in the Constitution. The difficulty we always have, and I, I, I should mention, if you don't mind, I'm launching a book uh, tomorrow uh, found in translation by Laura Rademacher, who's a, a, a PhD student from here. Australia Cassie University in ANU, and it's a it's a magnificent book, and I'd commend it to everybody. But it's about the mistranslation and the inter- interpretation, and the culturation of la- of language, at Anunwakwa in uh, Groot Island. Um, but it, it is a fabulous book in terms of uh, of uh, informing uh, people about what fundamentally went wrong, um, or what the truth is in regards to settlements, um, what the truth is in regards to the nature of our ongoing difficulty and dysfunction, the truth of where communication has gone so badly wrong. It would be a really good book for politicians to read to understand um, in a in a more creative way um, in the 21st century that um, there are more solutions than there are problems. And um, But that book certainly gives the right foundation towards uh, challenging how we um, haven't been capable in the past um, of being able to accommodate two legitimate kind of systems that operate side by side. Peter, you you made the comment that there are more solutions than there are problems, um, which I think is a great message for us to be thinking about. For you, in policy terms, what are those key solutions that we need to be thinking about? Um, And if we were to be here in five years' time and say, you know, what have we put in place? What solutions have we put in place? What would you would you hope has happened to to move us forward, to move us out of a nineteenth century think tank approach, which I think is how you at one point described mm. a, a white paper, into the twenty first century? I, I think fundamentally, we the foundational reference points and hooks have to be done so it's owned by every Australian, and 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 that refers to the constitution. I think we have to have the constitutional changes. We have to have that representative position, call it voice, call it whatever you want. It has to be where there is a distinguishable position of the First Peoples uh, that is not just because of who we are as the First Peoples, but because it is the uniqueness of who we are as Australia, as a country. And uh, you know, and that has to happen because it has to define ourselves in in a, in, a, in this globalised society we live in. Because we can't continue to have the high incarceration recidivism levels um, in our prison systems throughout Australia. We can't continue to have the unacceptable um, suicide levels 
there's a level we've got to drag our people up. We're a first nation, economic nation in the world. We we have the 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 resources and the wealth to do it. Do we we don't do we have the conviction? That's really the question. So I think I think there has to be that. I think there has to be a complete realignment of the nature of a of a um, bipartisan approach uh, to developments. The second point um, between politically between the states and the, and the Commonwealth. And thirdly, we need to look at um, um, key investment strategies towards the um, the infrastructure and architecture required to give Aboriginal independence in terms of better governance, better management. Peter, you've talked there, I think, so powerfully about some of the challenges um, and the despair that uh, is facing um, so many Aboriginal communities across Australia. But I wanted to go back and pick up on a comment that you made earlier, which was about a Yaru concept of well-being, mm-hmm. which is, I think, somewhat different from the way we think about development, the way we think about policy um, generally across Australia. And I, I wanted to ask you what the rest of Australia, the non-Aboriginal part of Australia, can learn from a Yaru concept of well-being. Yeah. No, so that it's not always about, you know, fixing problems in in Indigenous Australia, but actually also asking, what can we learn? Yes, and uh, I should say, uh, while we've been leading the kind of push for the recognition and 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 applying this to our everyday activities and our management and our governance and our uh, business, um, it's it's a concept widely uh, practiced and understood in probably most communities, Aboriginal communities uh, around the country. So it's not uniquely Yaru, but we we have given it some form and definition by which to apply it, and and uh, we're actually engaged in looking at um, um, developing measurement criteria in respect to that well-being. Um, I should uh, commend the uh, the um, research and the the PhD student Mandy Yap from ANU did uh, with Eunice, you, my sister, from Broome about um, you know from the bottom up. Um, um, Yaru well-being, and now that's quite a. Um, I think it's probably one of the first of its kind in some ways. We've done a couple of firsts. We also did a fairly comprehensive Yaru cultural management plan, which is very much part to the nature of our definition of Yaru well-being. So one of the first things we did when we negotiated an agreement was we knew we had to connect our people back to the country. We knew we had to uh, deal with the dysfunctional issues. We knew we had to give confidence and trust that what we were doing um, in trying to build the business, we had to deliver something back to the community. But the well-being concept fundamentally uh, in very – it might sound simplistic, but it's not simplistic. I mean, I think the thing the thing is like uh, during the Bargadan season, which is during the dry season of the year when the southeast wind blows, it's when the um, when the salmon, threadfin salmon, blows, no, salmon run up in the northwest. And that is what then uh, preoccupies most of our community's activities and mine. And so uh, the, the whole conversation is around um, where the fish biting, where did you get the bait, how many fish did they get, who did you give it to. Um, it's it's a the the conversation interrelates to the kind of nature of what is important to us in that environment. Um, so understanding the that is cultural knowledge that's passed down, you know, from generation to generation. That's part of the oral history. Uh, and now it, it we take it as a given. We don't see it as anything extraordinary. Um, but, you know, whether you're at the football or whether you're at uh, some social event or something, people will be talking about fishing. 
um, we integrate into the nature of our what it is with business. So when, when we run our program, say for we look after our old people. Um, you know, we tell our staff that they have to go, they have to make sure that our senior people have got um, not only decent homes to live in and appropriate kind of facilities, amenities in there, but um, they got to go fishing and and make sure that the old people get fish. It's 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 that kind of. Uh, sustaining those kinds of values and practices through activities such as fishing or hunting. Peter, thank you. It's I think it's just um, both interesting but empowering to hear not just about the challenges but about what we can what we can learn from deep cultural knowledge and practices. We've talked about um, development in the north. We've talked about knowledge. We've talked about despair. We've talked about hope. How optimistic are you for the future? Well, look, I always say that if you're an Aboriginal person, you've got no other choice but to be optimistic because there is an alternative. For all the negative negative stereotypes that the community out there might see and hear and stuff, I can guarantee you the far majority is quite the opposite, um, that there, yes, we have some serious challenges. Uh, there is a level of dysfunction. We need uh, improved services and infrastructure, uh, but we're not going away. We actually, you know, we are, we continue to, grow our community um, and uh, we continue to have a legitimate say and uh, position and voice. You know, it's really, the, the challenge really is not so much for us as the challenge really is for the broader uh, Vox Populi. Um, you know, people developing the kind of, um, the opportunity to look at this as a bit of a portal and insight into try and uh, access and and use a bit of energy and some, you know, and some effort in the brain to be able to try and appreciate this. Look, whenever, whenever people I've met, tourists and a whole range of other people who've never been to the north, who come up for holidays or go out in the country with Aboriginal people, they're, they're absolutely taken and fascinated and um, immensely engaged and proud that this is happening. But they haven't yet, but the majority haven't yet made that connection. But the people who do understand better for themselves what it means to be Australian. Peter Yu, it has been an absolute privilege to talk to you today. Thank you so much for coming onto the podcast and sharing your ideas with us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you so much, Peter. So, Peter, you're going to stay with us to talk a little bit about some of the comments we've had from our listeners. And to our listeners, stay around because there's more to come yet. So thank you, Peter Yu, once again for joining us. Peter, you're going to stay with us as we, we talk about some of the comments that we've had on um, past episodes of the pod. And Quentin, you're still here, of course. Absolutely. We're going to ask our listeners to, to feed back to us on what they thought about their fantastic conversation with Peter. You can reach us at Apps Policy Forum, Asia Pacific Policy Forum on Facebook, or drop us a line, podcast at policyforum.net. But let's have a talk about some of the comments that have come our way on Policy Forum's platform. So recently, Asia and the Pacific Policy Studies Journal published an article by Anna Florini and Marcus Pauli, Collaborative Governance for the Sustainable Development Goals. They take a look at how the public sector and the private sector can come together to achieve the SDGs. Rajnesh on Twitter made this comment. This article raises a number of interesting questions. One that resonated was aligning business interests with the sustainability agenda and how that can be measured when the key private sector metric is profitability. And I think that's a comment that lots of people ask. Quentin, what are your thoughts? Well, I think that's a 
big comment uh, on big sets of issues. We've just had a Royal Commission report, an interim report last Friday on the banking and the financial sector, and it tells us that the culture has really gone wrong. So there's uh, people making decisions that are against the interests of their customers, and not just once or twice, but thousands of times. So clearly, getting the profitability right for shareholders must also include the triple bottom line. And there's no way that we're going to get the sustainable development goals achieved by 2030 or come anything close to that unless we get a rethink about what we do and how we run our lives and how people make decisions in terms of what they do to others. Yeah, look, I think that's right, Quentin. We're, we're in the midst of that Banking Royal Commission. We've also had the exposés recently around the aged care sector. And I think, you know, here's, here's an issue waiting to explode in the most disturbing ways in terms of the way profitability has been prioritised over people's lives, over, over well-being. Um, so really disturbing issues there. Peter, can I bring you in here? What do you think about you know these 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 questions around the focus of the private sector on profitability and how that sits in relation to meeting the sustainable development goals? I think a lot of it comes down to the question: what is a um, it's a cultural framework that's um, um, been allowed to be to be built up, and I guess that's where you have governments. Governments are there to by policy and program to incentivise environments, but at the same time to regulate them appropriately and uh, ensure there is the uh, expected transparency that the community demands and expects and should and should get. And I think uh, sometimes the the nature of that responsibility get distracted by the, the by the nature of the politic itself rather than the particular issue. Um, I do think that. This is a challenge for all of us as, as in Australia. I think that the there is a dark side to our culture, and I, I without wanting to dwell entirely on historical kind of things, I think the na- the nature of the degree of competitiveness and transparency and our care for each other as uh, as a community, um, there is um, there is a disconnect, and I think that this disconnect uh, allows certain section of the community, whether in the business or whether it's in, in through the uh, disability services. Um, the the need to be able to um, uh, be competitive. I, I wouldn't call it competitive, but I've been. I, I think um, competition is always good, but it's it's uh, and sometimes it's quite devious in terms of. Um, and there's a certain kind of pride at, with being able to get around the system, if you like, and and um, it's associated with the whole cultural larrikinism kind of thing. It has contradictory kind of definitions to some extent in the Australian business and other contexts. Uh, uh, but it fundamentally comes down to the the issue of um, accountability in terms of the way the governments um, appropriately legislate and regulate these activities. Yeah, I, I think they're great points, Peter. And, you know, when I'm hearing you talk, I also think about this this concept that some may say is a myth around Australian culture, which is the commitment to egalitarianism. And, of course, when we're thinking about the way in which um, business has unfolded and developed, the focus on what's most important, the focus on profitability, I think we really need to think deeply about egalitarianism and what that actually means and perhaps how we make that concept meaningful um, as we as we think about the future and we think about some of those issues that Rajneesh raised in, in his comment about um, the private sector and the public sector. I just want to add to what you and Peter just said. I think it's about respect. Mm. There's nothing wrong with a business seeking profit. That 
that makes sense. You've got to deliver for shareholders. But it's respect. You've got to respect the customer. If you're working in an old folks' home, you need to respect the people you're working with and, and who you're working for. If you're working in the northern part of Australia, you've got to respect who owns that land and respect their history. It's about respect. And if we don't respect others, if we don't think of the community, if we put ourselves first, number one, then we're going to get these cultural bad practices that we've seen in the financial and banking sector. But I don't think it's just restricted to that sector, unfortunately, Sean. I think we have to shine a light on ourselves in Australia, and I don't think it's unique to Australia on, on what we're doing and, and how we do it. And uh, so that's that's the that's the key point. I'll, I'll uh, rest my case on that. It's <laughs> <laughs> a great point, Quentin. And we, we won't continue this conversation too long because there are other comments that we want to get to. But I'm also thinking of the point that Peter made in our earlier conversation um, about well-being and the concept of um, fulfilling your obligations, of doing what you need to do for others, for your community, for the people around you. And so I go back to that and think there's a lot Mm. that we can learn. There's a lot that we can take away from that concept of well-being, which is just not about me. It's about us. But let's, um, let's have a bit of a chat about one of our recent podcasts, Australia's Light Bulb Moment with Emma Aspert, um, Paul Burke and Matt Stocks. And this podcast was looking at um, something very exciting that happens here within the ANU, the ANU Grand Challenges Competition. And this is where some of our particularly fabulous researchers from across the university put forward their ideas about a research project that simply must happen. They pitch it um, and then the the winning idea is funded quite generously um, to be able to take that research forward. And so we recently interviewed the winners of the Grand Challenge competition, um, Emma and Paul and Matt, and there was a big group involved in that, about their plans to build Australia's renewable, renewable energy export industry from the ground up. So Jeremy commented on that podcast. He said, exporting renewables to Australia is a nice idea, but the fossil fuel lobby is just too strong to let itself be replaced anytime soon. I'd like to be optimistic, but I don't see it happening in my lifetime. This is not completely unrelated to the conversation we just had. (laughs) Um, But Quentin, you had some involvement in that grand challenge. What do you think? Well, uh, just to... to, to highlight Jeremy, I hope Jeremy's not going to live a long time because, <laughs> because no, sorry, Jeremy. We don't need it, Jeremy. <laughs> if you're living a century, Jeremy, then the world is is really in a catastrophe. So just to put this in perspective, so the latest work indicates that by 2100, there's only a five percent. That's just a five percent probability that the world's uh, global warming, uh, global uh, mean temperature, will increase by two degrees or less. So basically, we're two degrees plus by 2100, and it'll get even hotter after 2100. So that's the whole point of this climate change stuff. This is the whole point about renewables, is we've got a major problem on our hand. And that problem is not linear. If you go from two to three, and from three to four, and to four to five degrees, uh, global mean temperature increase at a surface level, you're talking about huge, huge costs. So, so we've got to do something. We're part of the problem. We've got to be part of the solution here in Australia. And renewables in terms of generating electricity from wind, PV, 
photovoltaics and indeed other sources is part of that solution. And so we've got a, had a series of policies in Australia. Uh, some of them are still in place and some of them were gotten rid of uh, based, I think, on uh, short-termism. But we need to refocus ourselves. What are we going to do in Australia? How are we going to do it? And, and that's in our long-term interest. And it's not just about helping people elsewhere in the world. It's about helping ourselves here in Australia as well. Yeah, no, I think that's right, Quentin. I think that message that we can't not do anything <laughs> is just where we where we are at the moment. Now, I do a lot of research with children and young people, and for them, issues around climate change, around the environment, around renewables are just so pressing. And I think we as the generation that essentially holds power and holds the, the ability to make decision-making, to make decisions at the moment – simply can't say it's too hard. This is something that we simply have to resolve. We can't leave the next generation um, with no hope for the future. Well, can I also add, uh, we shouldn't be walking into Parliament with a lump of coal. <laughs> we should actually be thinking about what we need to be doing in terms of replacing coal. It can't happen overnight. I understand that. But that's part of what this grand challenge is about, is to be zero carbon. And it's about uh, doing the right thing and creating opportunities. And that includes jobs. That includes better communities and includes a whole range of things and, and returns to shareholders. So uh, I think that's what we're trying to do here. And uh, ANU is just part of the, a very big puzzle. And we need to get that puzzle uh, sorted and, and sorted soon. Uh, we haven't got decades to sit on our um, backsides waiting for somebody else to fix it for us. We're going to have to fix it ourselves. I think this project is just so exciting. This research is so exciting. Um, and it does seem to me that there are so many opportunities for development, for profitability, for creating uh, new ways of promoting economic growth by thinking about renewables. You know, I, I think coal is not the way forward, but there are lots of opportunities in terms of the way forward and we're, we're not taking them. And maybe this grand challenge will open up the way for us to be able to take those opportunities. But Peter... What are your thoughts on, on some of these issues? Well, I, I think it's a great initiative. It's a brilliant initiative, obviously, and it's something I, I can only concur with what Quentin said. I mean, I certainly am uh, not an expert on any stretch of imagination, but I live in a, a fairly um, um, warm, should I say, climate. And, I, and if anybody wants to know about climate change, I think those of us that live in the north can be um, give testament to some of the, the nature of the weather, but it's not only the north, it's happening all around the country. But I think... You know, it just doesn't make any sense to me that um, given the, the amount of sun we get and, and uh, where we are and the fact that uh, we're looking for investing in the uh, northern economy and particularly engaging the Aboriginal community that we wouldn't be looking at some uh, major renewable kind of source that's going to be affordable and reliable given, given that the amount of costs uh, it is today. I mean, you know, the in, in terms of the um, – I used to sit on the Horizon Power Board um, when it was first disaggregated from Western Power um, in Western Australia, we were responsible for regional uh, provision of uh, energy. And, um, you know, we've got, um, um, say, in the Pilbara, you've got three, we, we taxpayers subsidise three multinationals, you know, BHP, uh, uh, Shell, Rio Tinto, I think, I think it is, you know, for under the um, diesel fuel rebate um, for. Uh, you know, for their energy um, requirements in terms of generation, transmission, and stuff, and I, I just um, the cost of that, and that's heavily subsidised by the, uh, the you know the uh, energy tariff equalisation 
um, policy that exists in it. So we're already um, getting some level of discount, but uh, the, the but it just it's relative to the nature of the overall cost, enormous and and unsustainable costs that it is to deliver energy in regional Western Australia. And yet, for most of the time, we've got sun. It just doesn't make any sense. So this grand challenge is about taking those opportunities and, and making sense of it instead of leaving us all perplexed about why we're still carrying around lumps of coal or depending on coal. So, Jeremy, we hope you lead a long and happy life, but some cause for optimism. There's there's an opportunity here through this grand challenge to, to make a difference, you know, in conjunction with all, all of the other things that are happening. So, Jeremy, make your voice heard. And thank you for sharing that comment with us. Quentin and Peter, it's been great to talk with you today. And a big thank you to everyone who commented. And a reminder to keep sending those comments in. That also includes suggestions for future episodes for Policy Forum Pod. We'd love to hear what you'd like to hear about. Reach us at Apps Policy Forum. Asia Pacific Policy Society on Facebook or drop us a line podcast at policyforum.net. And if you've if you've enjoyed today's episode and I really did enjoy today's episode it was just fantastic to have the opportunity to to speak with Peter if you felt that way too, then perhaps you might want to leave us a quick review on iTunes. That's right, we're on iTunes. It takes 30 seconds. Just find that fifth star. That's what we're after. It'll be a big help to us in getting the word out about our podcast. And we'll be back next week with another Policy Forum pod. Until then, from me, Sharon Bessel, bye for now. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.